Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR at 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Karen Green from the University of Melbourne. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Christian ideology has contributed no little to the oppression of women. Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex, 1949. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. I'm Bridget Evans, and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Emma McNichol about Simone de Beauvoir. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Beth. Now, can you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Okay, sure. So my interests are feminist and queer philosophy, and I'm also interested in LGBTQI inclusive education. I've got a master's in philosophy. I focused on Simone de Beauvoir's philosophy, and that's from Monash University. But I was also fortunate to have the supervision of Stella Stanford from Kingston in London. And I currently live in Oxford in England, and I've just completed a research fellowship at the Oxford University Education Deanery, and my focus was on LGBTQI inclusive education. So my current project is that I run support groups for LGBTQI students, and I design and implement educational resources for staff and students on how to make school environments more inclusive and more queer-friendly. And so when you hear me say that and you think, oh, sounds like safe schools, yep, I'm totally ripping them off. <laughs> They're lovely, friendly people. I've even used um, some of their resources in, over in England. Great. So what was it that inspired you to study Simone de Beauvoir? Well, since childhood, I've maintained an interest in feminist thought, I suppose. I mean, I recall being about four years old and finding the happy endings of fairy tales pretty suspicious. And I became interested or increasingly frustrated by everyday feminist dialogue and kind of turned to theoretical feminism and feminist philosophy to overcome these shortfalls. What I mean by that is I had bits and pieces of knowledge. I had words, you know, patriarchy or sexism or a feeling that sucks, you know, but it was almost like they were scattered stars in the sky and they had nothing to do with one another. So Beauvoir, when I turned to her, managed to provide me with a coherent constellation. She was able to explain to me how these stars interrelate. And why I continue to research her is that, for me, the constellation remains complex and dense. If I'm going to stick with this cheesy metaphor, it's the idea that there are kind of galaxies yet to be discovered. So after many years of reading her and quite a few years of working on her, I remain animated by questions regarding the constellation. I mean, how does Beauvoir's work relate to American queer philosopher Judith Butler's? Um, how can Beauvoir's presentation of the body be used to um, generate a trans-inclusive philosophy? Stuff like that. Right, so can you tell us about your research? Sure. So my the topic of my thesis was called Experimentation, Authority and Situation. So I did an overview of 
Beauvoir's work on the on a fellow-centric or patriarchal authority, and I looked at the way that Beauvoir um, trawled through the Western canon of religion and all textual history in order to generate a critique or a criticism of that. So, so oh, who yeah. was she? Okay, so um, so when people think of Simone de Beauvoir, they might think of her as a sexually liberated woman. They might think of her as a cool cat drinking champagne and smoking on the left bank, or they might think of her as the great philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre's a jilted girlfriend. But Beauvoir is actually a really complex character, and she's someone who's much harder to pin down than we might think. So who was she? She was an existentialist, a philosopher, a writer, a feminist activist, a public intellectual, and she was born in Paris in 1908. Her best-known work is her 1949 examination of the oppression of women, and that's entitled The Second Sex. Throughout her life, she identified as a writer, and she rejected the term philosopher. Now, that makes sense to some degree. Only a small part of her work is obviously and traditionally philosophical. She wrote a four-part autobiography, novels, short stories, theatre, reviews, articles, travel journals, political pamphlets and essays. While her fiction treats philosophical ideas, and she did indeed characterise her own fiction as metaphysical, she rarely explored philosophical ideas in recognisably, traditionally philosophical form. So until the late 80s, Beauvoir, 1980s that is, Beauvoir's writing had been subject mostly to biographical readings. Now, I believe that's not simply because she eschewed the term philosopher. In particular, her pseudo-autobiographical fiction publicised her romantic liaisons and her eschewal of monogamy, and she achieved something of a cult status as a model of a sexually liberated woman. But there was, of course, another key reason why she wasn't taken seriously as a philosopher. She was known and presented and depicted as a sidekick to the big philosophical great, her lifelong partner, Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, her relationship with him was itself deflected or detracted from the kind of acknowledgement of her philosophical acumen, but even that relationship itself was subject to great public criticism. They were famously polyamorous. They said that we're each other's essential partner, but we won't remain sexually monogamous. Currently, people still talk about them as uh, she's his jilted lover. He was the one having all the fun. He was sleeping around, breaking her heart regularly. You don't have to delve very deeply into Beauvoir's autobiographies, journals and love letters to realise that she was writing them to lots of other people, women and men, not just him. I think it's a very chauvinistic or sexist way of reading their relationship to assume he was the only one enjoying himself. However, she did explicitly relegate herself to the status of his disciple. She contributed to and she fed the image of Sartre as the great philosopher. For example, in the, I think it was the mid-80s with the great Beauvoir scholar Margaret Simmons, who had knocked on Beauvoir's door in Paris and was said, oh, uh, Simone, or maybe she called her Madame Beauvoir, I'm not sure. Um, I've got this idea. I'm pretty sure here you're tracing, I think she was tracing her Searle's lineage. She said, please tell me, had you read this? Was this what you were getting at here? in this part of the second sex and and Beauvoir said I'm afraid Sartre is the only philosophical influence on this text and so Beauvoir for a number of possible reasons 
insisted that he was the philosopher, she wasn't, and that in fact, if anyone could locate anything philosophical in her work, she would say that it was him and his the the traces of him and his work. Interestingly, now posthumously, many scholars have paid increasing attention to this specifically philosophical work and the way that she has. I would think the ingenious way she has repurposed material from the Western philosophical canon for the purposes of her own philosophical project. So famously in 1991, the French uh, feminist philosopher Michelle Ledeuf argued that Beauvoir critically reworks and actually subtly undermines Sartrean philosophy in the second sex. And this has encouraged a new wave of feminist philosophers to pay attention to Beauvoir's subversive and critical treatment of male philosophers. And in the last couple of decades, there has been some really exciting work done examining her feminist dialogue with figures in the canon such as Hegel, Sartre, Heidegger, Husserl, Merleau-Ponty and Lévi-Strauss. So what were Beauvoir's key ideas? Well, I think that Beauvoir, or I, I understand Beauvoir as a philosopher of freedom and a philosopher of oppression. So she lived in a really interesting time historically, born in 1908. She was living in France at a really interesting time, certainly under German occupation, living in France. These questions of freedom and oppression were very pressing. At the start of the second sex, we see Beauvoir announce this she claims the methodology that I'm going to use is one of existentialist morality. And by that, she, she says, through projects, every subject posits himself or herself as transcendence. We accomplish freedom by surpassing towards other freedoms. Now, that sounds a little bit turgid, but what she simply means is if we're pursuing interesting projects, if we're free, and that means entails um, having interesting projects, having the ability to pursue them. We're existing. Now, for the existentialist, to exist was the goal. So if you're existing, you're free. If you're not, you're simply experiencing life. Now, if someone else is frustrating our ability to do so, for example, being um, part of the Jewish uh, community in France at that time, they would be considered merely living, not existing. And someone doing that to them is an oppressor and they would be the oppressed. So when transcendent lapses, uh, she writes, when transcendence, which is moving forward, having an interesting project you're working towards, which also means that you're kind of heading towards something else, lapses into imminence. Now that's I-M-M-A, as in inside itself, not something that's coming, I-N. This is a degradation of existence. And if the fall is inflicted on the subject, it is oppression. So if someone curtails our freedom, if someone frustrates your ability to engage in interesting projects that throw us, transcend us beyond ourselves, they're an oppressor and our freedom's oppressed. So if we frustrate our own freedom, Beauvoir considers this a moral fault. Now, as, as I'll explain in a little while, that's one of the real tensions in Beauvoir's work because throughout the second sex, in, in a lot of ways, she seems to kind of be saying that women are complicit in their own oppression and that to some extent they are frustrating their own freedom. They're choosing kind of crappy projects or no projects at all. So their, their own, the, what she would say, the degradation of their existence, their freedom into imminence is probably on them. But anyway, the main key idea of, of the second sex is patriarchy. So as a thinker of oppression, and the second sex is a pioneering account of oppression, we find a groundbreaking and thorough analysis of patriarchy. 
and patriarchy is, of course, the executor of this oppression. And this is written in three years, and it's such a massive book. I don't know if you've held it in your hands or read through it, but wow, to have done this in three years, it's you know one hell of a kind of PhD thesis. She wrote it between 1946 and 1949. And for Beauvoir, um, patriarchy refers to a world that's organised, controlled, and designed by men. So for her, men planned and organised society in order to maintain their own powerful status. So patriarchal authority refers to the means of the control, and she identifies that as legislative, mythical, and intellectual authority. So while the second sex studies all of these texts, novels men have written, theories they have propounded, religious doctrine they've created, and she seeks to demonstrate how the texts inculcate women with a belief in their own inferiority and also secures male control and superiority. But while the second sex is a clear example of this, I'd like to mention some lesser known works too. So, for example, in 1945, there's a, um, well, published in 1945, is a play written by Beauvoir called The Useless Mouths. Now, the plot is quite simple. There's a medieval town and it's been besieged. Within that town, the citizens are starving to death. So the men inside this besieged town where everyone's very hungry, <laughs> starving, the men are building a tower that houses the town's archives. So this tall belfry or belfry building, it's very long and it's very tall. You know, think we can think of something else that has that shape. And it's a convenient symbol of, pa- uh, symbol of patriarchy. So men's uh, men, all of their effort is put in towards creating and maintaining a structure that serves their own ends and purposes. So while everyone's starving, they're working on building a building that puts town archives in it. And what do they do? What's the remedy they propose to starvation? They propose, let's kick out the useless mouths. And that is anyone who's not serving their end of creating a tower that houses their archives. And that's women, elderly and children. So this idea that their efforts are building while starving, their efforts are going on building this structure, reinforces Beauvoir's belief that patriarchal authority is relatively absurd, but also it references corruption of male power and that these men are creating and maintaining their own status and power at the expense of others. Another text that we might not know where we can find an early kind of a, we can trace Bovar's historical interest in a patriarchal criticism is a 1937 ensemble of short stories. And that's called When Things of the Spirit Come First. Bovar approached a number of publishing houses and no one wanted to publish it. No one touched it until she was famous. I think it didn't get published until the 70s. But this text is five short stories, five young women who were all sort of interlinked. Now, these all of these young women experience religion in a negative way. And in each of five kind of case studies, religion is impeding their access to freedom. Religion is dominating their ability to, say, choose interesting projects or access their own transcendence. Okay, And then finally, of course, in the second sex, Beauvoir does this incredible mammoth, massive study where she submits philosophical, literary, scientific, sociological and religious authority to close scrutiny and that shows up the complicity of all those disciplines in gender depression.
So in the latter half of this text, the study of situation, the second sex uses a more literary descriptive register to illuminate how women endorse and respond to patriarchy and how women and how their identities are constructed in this world that men have created for themselves. So if you want, I can talk a bit about the theory of situation. Yep. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Emma McNichol about Simone de Beauvoir. Okay, so situation is an important concept for Beauvoir. It refers to how women respond to patriarchy, how women experience life, and how their character is constituted in a male-constructed world. The famous quote is as follows... Woman's wings are clipped, but then she's blamed for not knowing how to fly. In the intro to The Second Sex, she also quotes the playwright George Bernard Shaw. And this is a a similar quote that reinforces the same idea. Shaw wrote, and, and Beauvoir quotes, The white American relegates the black to the rank of shoeshine boy, but then concludes, blacks are only good for shining shoes. So... Uh, what we're getting at here, situation, is this a cycle of inferiority. This is the idea that patriarchy provides limited opportunities for women, but then uses this as evidence of women's natural inferiority. For example, we can look at the literary canon, which is something that Beauvoir refers to in The Second Sex. She points out that it was sustained and created by men. There were male writers, male editors, male critics. These texts are full of myths that perpetuate women's inferiority. And, of course, men were generally receiving patronage and women were very rarely receiving it. And this means then, after with all of those factors not considered, men will then refer to the literary canon and proclaim, well, clearly men are good writers and clearly men are better writers than women and clearly women aren't naturally good writers. So situation as a concept also involves this pretty bold proviso that woman's character is born from her situation. So if we think about that for a second and we think about the fact that Beauvoir believes woman's situation isn't great, we have to come to the conclusion that Beauvoir also thinks that often woman's character isn't that great. So it was a rather unpopular declaration, but Beauvoir argued, and in some respects it sounds like she's in cahoots with all of these male philosophers that came before her who said all these terrible things about women. She says, yes, women might be or women often are materialistic, narcissistic, vain, stupid, unintelligent, uninteresting, and so on. Of course, what makes Beauvoir different from all of these male philosophers and sexists who said these sort of things about women is that she's claiming women aren't naturally vain, women aren't destined to be vain, women aren't born silly and giggly and frivolous, but their situation has made them this way. So another way that Beauvoir inaugurates feminist philosophy is the fact that she uses philosophy um, without authorization, per se. And so what do I mean by this? So the second sex refers explicitly and regularly to male authors and philosophers who directly challenge women's ability to write, women's ability to philosophize. So on a very fundamental level, the text is actually performative. She's saying, hey, buddy, look what I'm doing. You know, I can do this. And furthermore, women weren't meant to philosophize. All the great philosophers had arguments against the ability of women to do so. And furthermore, women isn't meant to use philosophical resources to diagnose the apparatus of gender depression. 
woman also wasn't meant to use philosophical resources to expose the inherently oppressive apparatus of philosophy itself. And then in conjunction with that, Beauvoir transforms both the philosophical subject and the gender of the philosopher. So when Aristotle would ask, hmm, what is the essence of mankind? You know, what is really a human? And of course he meant man. Beauvoir asks, hey, what is woman or what is a woman? Depends on which translation you're reading. And Beauvoir turns that into a philosophical question. And she's bold enough and she's learned enough to answer, what is a woman? Hey, I am. And she's able to follow that through philosophically. So for the first time, the subject of a philosophical text and that writer positions themselves as explicitly gendered. And this is a historically important moment it can be argued. I mean, there were, of course, there were uh, feminist philosophers before Beauvoir, but I think that this act really inspired feminist philosophy and queer philosophy. So if, if we wanted to think of a couple of examples of how Beauvoir uses philosophy without authorization and some very small examples of how she changes the kind of landscape of it, we can look very quickly to the, her, the way that she plays with or revises the terms imminence and transcendence. Now, these are, you know, traditional um, European philosophical terms. Her predecessor, Immanuel Kant, had used them. Her life partner, Sartre, had used it or did use it. And Beauvoir uses these terms to describe a split in the experience of life between men and women. So imminence, as in immanence with an A, meaning within, and transcendence, moving beyond, in Beauvoir's vocabulary, come to describe the different experiences men and women have towards material objects. So men with their spades and their spanners and their, you know, all of their mantles can transcend and overcome inert matter, inert matter, while women are bound to imminent matter. They stay inside. But ultimately, the terms also refer to men's access to transcendent spheres. They can move beyond outside the house, outside the domestic, towards the polis, which is probably what we mean today when we say parliament, to law, to culture, religion. They write it, they create it, they discuss it, they debate it, they're out and about, while women remain bound to imminent in its etymological sense within or inside the home. Bova provides, legions of women have in common only endlessly recurrent fatigue in a battle that never leads to victory. She's referring to housework, by the way. Few tasks are more similar to the torment of Sisyphus, and that's the bloke, you know, rolling the uh, rock up the hill over and over again, than those of the housewife. A struggle that begins again every day. And what she talks about is, you know, the perpetually dirty plate. You clean that plate, but hey, next day you've already had spaghetti again. If you, you mend your child's trousers, well, yep, next day they're going to split them again on the, you know, seesaw or whatever. She says that this kind of, this form of domestic servitude is cyclic. It's never ending. You never get a sense of um, of um, completion and you, you don't extend yourself spiritually, intellectually and perhaps morally in the way that if you were doing work in the polis or, you know, in law, religion or professionally that you might get. Beauvoir also appropriates some really interesting work on alterity. She was well-versed in Levi-Strauss and Hegel, and she uses Hegel's very famous master-slave dialectic to describe the way she believes that men othered women. So Hegel's master-slave dialectic refers to the fact that there is no possibility for absolute subjugation of the master over the slave. So if we imagine a master and a slave, the idea is that at one point or another, 
whether the master wants to kind of eradicate the slave's opportunity to look back and say, hey, I'm a person too, he can never do that. The slave's going to look back at the master. That interaction will occur. It will affect the master's conception of himself. He'll have to say, oh, yeah, damn, I, I am a master and there he is down there, you know. So there's the idea is that the dialectic says there's no possibility of an unreciprocal dynamic. Now, Bova appropriates that and, and gently criticises it. She says... In regards to men's literary treatment of women, she refuses that there's a dialectic at all. She says, if we look at the page, men have frozen this dialectic. They've not given women a chance to look back and say, hey, I'm the slave, but here I am. In their textual presentations, they have stuck woman on a page, frozen her, and that slave can't look back. So she reintroduces it, the dialectic, in order to articulate the claim that women are figured as an absolute other with no recourse to reciprocity. In criticising the, um, the French writer Montholon, she says he systematically avoids granting women a consciousness at all. There is never a question in his writing, she means, of setting up an intersubjective relationship with woman. Woman must be simple, animated object in man's kingdom. She, woman, can never be envisaged as subject, and her point of view can never be taken into account. So Beauvoir's claiming that the female character's capacity to establish or draw a reciprocal claim the possibility that the slave can look back and then the master has to acknowledge, oh, yeah, I am a master and that's a slave and this is something that's occurring, has been arrested by Mothalon and that he's configured her as a simple animated object. So she claims that woman, in the myths written by men, has been figured as an inessential. She claims this across a number of authors, including the Catholic poet Paul Claudel. Now, that's one of her most interesting theses. She claims that... In venerating woman, in making woman pose goddess-like, in saying, oh, aren't you so wonderful? You're such a beautiful, divine creature. You're such a fantastic mother. You know, you're everything nice and no thing spice. She claims that that actually constitutes her concrete subordination, that it's not only when men say bad things about women that pernicious consequences may arise. She says that when men venerate women, by mythologizing women at all, that will that enables and facilitates woman's concrete subjugation. So if we're valorizing woman, such a perfect mother, such a beautiful lady, such a sweetie, we're actually saying, back to the kitchen, honey, or we're saying, hey, you know, look, go pick up that kid's poo. You know, I think that's kind of what she's saying, that this veneration is ultimately convenient and ultimately enables that bloke to just kind of get misty-eyed and say, isn't she the perfect mother? She's the maternal myth. And then he can go back to the pub. So... Ultimately, I think that in philosophizing as an unauthorized party, Beauvoir uses it to produce an expose on philosophy's historically sexist nature, and also she made feminist philosophy possible. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, it was so much fun. Thanks, Beth. And I've been speaking to Emma McNichol about Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?